0: What's up, everybody? Don't mind me. This is uh, not a part of this, but I loved, loved, loved being a part of that mikvah and that time of repentance. But I don't necessarily want to slip in all the water on the stage, so that's what's going on here. I'm a pacer, and I thought maybe I'll just stay in one spot, and I realized that's not going to happen. So my name is Brandon, one of the staff members here. Um, super excited. It was such a blessing already. I feel like we've already had full church just with that time of worship and mikvah and hearing from the crooks. Um, But I wanna dive into something today, something that I think every one of us in this room has experienced, something that I actually would guess everybody in this room to some extent or another is currently experiencing in this moment. I'm almost tempted to have people guess, but I see people kind of looking around, and that just sounds really risky to me. Uh, We're going to talk about conflict, and so maybe that's just me avoiding conflict already at the start. (laughs) I'm going to be the first person today to just raise my hand and say I have been steeped in conflict this week. I don't know if you guys ever experienced this, but I feel like sometimes when I'm Getting ready to talk about something or present something or write about it. God has this way of just kind of like subtly reminding me that I'm really not an expert in this area. And so guys, I, I sat in a room this week and there was just heated conflict. People stormed out of the room. People took vows of silence. People threatened to quit. And you guys may not know this about me. I worked as a mediator before coming to Crossroads. And that room was not at Crossroads. Let me just clarify. (laughs) No one threatened to quit this week. Uh, No, Um, that really doesn't take place. So I worked as a mediator. I am... When I say I'm very comfortable in conflict, I want you guys to hear me. I really am, I'm comfortable in conflict. I worked as a mediator, paid for seminary that way. People would fly me across the country. There was marriages with massive infidelity. There was one family where a father had actually hired a hit on his son-in-law. There was massive conflict. Mothers who wouldn't talk to daughters. And so when I say I'm comfortable in conflict, I want you to hear this next statement. I sat in this room this week and people were fighting like crazy and I just, I felt completely helpless. I felt powerless to really do anything to stop all that was going on. And the whole time I just had this crazy voice in the back of my head that kept saying, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And I thought maybe it was God, but then it would be followed up with like, aren't you preaching that in a couple days, Brandon? (laughs) just kinda like just rubbing salt in the wound and so luckily I went home and I had this chance to redeem my peacemaking skills. I have a two year old daughter who is a delight. She is such an easy child to parent. Difficult baby, wonderful child. But on this particular day she was just melting down. She was so mad at daddy and the decision that I had made about something and so she was just kind of like, unraveling right there before me, and I, I stepped in. I was like, okay, I'm gonna redeem this. The counselor in me is coming out. I'm like helping her name her feelings at a two-year-old level. <laughs> I'm empathizing with her. Yeah, that's so hard, sweetie, and she kind of calmed down, and I gave her a hug, and she looked at me, and I could tell she wanted to say something, and I was like, just ready for like my well-earned thank you, or my well-earned <laughs> I love you, Daddy. And she looked at me, and she opened up her mouth, and she just went, no! (laughs) Guys, I'm 0 for 2 this week. I don't know that you want me preaching this message. But I asked somebody out in the hall if they wanted to do it instead, and they said no. And so I guess we'll just press on. Just know I'm preaching to myself first and foremost this morning. I really am. I like to think I do that every time I'm up here. Um, It just feels particularly true today. So turn with me to Matthew five. Matthew five, while you're turning there, as a reminder, we are in the Sermon on the Mount, and really it's just called that because Jesus sees this crowd and he goes up on the mountainside and he begins to teach his disciples. And if you've been here for the last six weeks, you remember that he begins with all these statements of blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek. And today we get to the seventh of those statements. And as we look at it, I want us to remember, these aren't seven different types of people. These aren't different personality types. We're talking about peacemakers, and I hear people say, blessed are the Enneagram nines. That's a personality test, for those of you guys who don't know. And number nines are peacemakers here, and I hear people say that, but I think it gives the wrong impression because these aren't seven different types of people so far that we've looked at. These are all descriptions of one person, kind of the ideal citizen of the kingdom. These are all descriptions that our friends and family should feel really comfortable giving about ourselves and how we live. So if you're thinking today, peacemaker, that's not me. I'm a fighter, not a lover. I hope you guys are ready for God to maybe challenge you a little bit. Or maybe you're on the opposite end of the spectrum, and you love to bury everything and never bring conflict to the light. Well, I hope you brought a shovel. Because <laughs> God might be calling you to unearth some things today. So if you are willing and able, we like to stand for the reading of God's word, so please stand with me. Matthew chapter five, verse nine. "Blessed are the peacemakers they will be called children of God this is the word of the Lord you can grab a seat (laughs) anyone get a leg cramp with that I know that may have felt like a formality but we stand not because of the length of the passage we stand out of respect for who the author is and so I really wanted us to still do that I also just wanna take a second right now at this point in the message to just kinda give a little pastoral point. I am well aware that in a room this size there are many of us who have had some really heinous and atrocious things that have been done to us, um, perpetrated against us. And it's real easy when we start talking about reconciliation and restoration um, to maybe feel a lot of pressure to step into a situation that might be really unwise, maybe even unsafe physically. Um, And so I just wanna say, I don't think that situation is as common as we maybe like to think that it's irreconcilable conflict, but I know that there really are some. And so Paul has a word in Romans 12 for us and he just says, if possible, indicating sometimes it's not, as much as it depends on us, live at peace with all people. And so if you have a situation that you feel like God's putting on your heart, but you're really not sure if it falls in that camp, I'd love to help discern afterwards, Um, but I just want to note that there are situations that as we talk about reconciliation and um, conversations maybe that need to be had, that it might still be unsafe. And so you need to practice um, discernment here. Does that make sense? Okay, perfect. Blessed are the peacemakers. I guess we're going to dive in. We have to first ask a big question. What's peace? So right now, if I slid a piece of paper over to you, put a pencil in your hand, what would you write? How would you define peace? Give you guys just a second, you can keep thinking about it, but I'll tell you, I looked at a lot of definitions of peace this week, a lot of them. And I found that there was one, and it kinda makes me curious how many of us thought something similar to this. There was one definition that kinda just bubbled up to the surface and was, in almost every single one. This was kind of the most common definition that I got. Makes me curious if we wrote it down. Peace is the absence of conflict. Pretty simple, right? Peace is the absence of conflict, and I think makes sense. I also think that's a very Western definition of peace. That might be what our blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus would be saying here, but Jesus wasn't. Jesus wasn't Western. Jesus was a Jewish man. In fact, here, he was probably speaking Hebrew. So what word do you think he used? Shalom. Shalom is different than just the absence of peace. Shalom has a depth and a texture that that definition just doesn't quite capture. Shalom comes from the root word complete or completion. It's likely the word that Jesus used in Luke 15 when the prodigal son returns home And the whole community throws this giant party because this son who was estranged from his father has returned back to the family and back to the community. All has been set right. All is how it should be. Shalom has been restored. It's a peace that sets everything back the way that it should have been. It's rightness. It's a recipe for flourishing. It's not just a mere absence of conflict here. It's all is right with the world. So when we say peacemaker, I don't want you to hear conflict avoider. We talked a couple weeks ago about peacemakers versus peacekeepers, and I agree wholeheartedly with that distinction. Peacemakers don't avoid conflict. They're actively involved in the restoration of all things. Let me say that again. Peacemakers don't avoid conflict. They are actively and intentionally involved in the restoration of all things peacemaking is the intentional effort to set relationships back to how they should be. Not even what they were, but how they should have been, how God created them for completion and flourishing. So shalom makers, maybe we could say, shalom makers enter conflict. So if we're going to enter conflict, let's ask, how should we view conflict, Crossroads? What do you think? How should we view conflict? I've got a quote from a Christian counseling journal that I stumbled across, and I really like the journal. Um, I wonder what you guys think about this, and I'll read it for those who are listening. First, realize that conflicts are sinful. Therefore, resolve them. Conflicts displease God. What do you guys think? Bad. <laughs> bad okay. I might have said a leading kind of thing with this as well. Are conflicts good or bad? see a lot of people sometimes shaking heads. How do we typically view them? Maybe not up here, but in our heart too, how do we view them? See, this makes me really confused when I look at this quote because did Jesus have conflict? What about God and Pharaoh? What about God and Satan? What about God and sin and us when we engage in it? The whole Bible, it could be argued, is about conflict resolution, shalom making. The first verses in the Bible talk about how God just, this is pre fall, brings shalom to chaos. It's the first, 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 first parts of our scriptures. A couple chapters later, we see Adam and Eve fall into sin and they're estranged from God, and the entire Bible is about the shalom bringer making peace between us both horizontally, us and him, and us with each other vertically or horizontally as well. But I don't think that I view conflict that way too often. And so I started thinking through what are some of the words that I typically hear people use that I typically think myself about conflict. And I thought about it's an inconvenience. It's painful. I hear people talk about it's a waste of time. We got something to accomplish and this conflict just keeps getting in the way. Frustrating, awkward, something to avoid or maybe something really exciting. I don't love the drama but it loves me, said a famous philosopher. You guys know, I hear you laughing. Famous philosopher T. Swift said that one. Two quick thoughts. I thought I heard someone cringe on that one too and I'm I'm just gonna keep going. (laughs) Two thoughts on conflict. Two responses that I think that we should have. One, I think conflict should be expected. Conflict in this world should be expected. I wonder if it's just a part of life. It's neither good nor bad in itself but more so it's about how we enter it and how we resolve it. In fact, I think if you can name a close relationship with zero conflict, I don't mean zero unhealthy, I mean zero conflict, I'm guessing that that relationship lacks either depth or authenticity. One or both people aren't being fully real. We are different people who have different views on things, who have different ideas on how the world should function and things should go and those ideas just rub against each other. The only way to, Avoid conflict is to make everything so bland to cut out all the spice that no one's taste will possibly be offended. This is the way of the world right now. How can I put something out there that's so neutral that no one could possibly be offended by it? Guys, conflict isn't the problem. The problem is that everyone is far more concerned with learning how to avoid it rather than learning how to press in and do it healthily. So conflict should be expected. I think also, conflict is best viewed as an opportunity. And I know that sounds like a bumper sticker. Conflict's an opportunity. But what if it's true? What if it's not just cliche, what if it's true? What if conflict wasn't a threat to shalom, but the means of achieving it? Let me say that again. What if conflict isn't a threat to shalom, but it's the door that we have to walk through to get it. I've been a part of mediations, I told you about a few earlier. They're tense, they're painful, they're uncomfortable at times, but there is nothing sweeter than the taste of reconciliation. There really isn't. I get why God throws a party for the prodigal son returning, for the lost sheep that's found. The intimacy, the depth of relationship that comes out of true reconciliation is astonishing, a depth that wouldn't have been present, I think, unless the conflict actually took place. Because conflict's an opportunity to get to know the other person better, to get to know your own heart and your own self better, to maybe even take another step towards Christ likeness. It's an opportunity to lay down our point or our desire to be right for the sake of the relationship. To choose, it's a chance to choose to fight to be loving rather than to win or to fight to be right. I think if we're gonna do conflict that way though, we have to get to the root. What's underneath our conflicts? What drives them? What's the soil that they just kind of sprout up from? On the surface, we said it a minute ago, people are different, right? Diversity, we're different people, different cultures, different ideas, different values. Shoot, I'm not even sure how this is possible, but in a room this size, we have different views on the direction that toilet paper should face on the wall. (laughs) And that blows my mind because I don't know how a self-respecting adult thinks that you should get your toilet paper with this motion. (laughs) I don't get it. it, makes no sense to me. But let's go deeper, okay? (laughs) Let me give you perhaps the biggest reason for conflict. The spark that ignites the fireworks for most of us. Turn to James chapter 4 with me. Remember, this is James, brother of Jesus, okay? It makes me wonder about normal brotherly conflict growing up. It is difficult to live in the shadow of an older sibling who seems perfect. (laughs) I can't imagine if they literally are perfect. But James says this, starting in verse one of chapter four, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Sounds like a great question. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something and you don't get it. Why do we have conflict? we're selfish the biggest problem in my marriage be real transparent with you guys the biggest problem in my marriage is my selfishness and I'm so glad that my wife is in the overflow with our kids because that amen is probably deafening right now (laughs) but I'm also so glad that I live with a wife who would say the biggest problem in our marriage is her selfishness all of us, if we're honest, we want what we want, when we want it, how we want it. Tell me I'm wrong. How does this play out in relationships? Let me walk you through a tool, okay? This tool has been really helpful for me that kind of captures what James is talking about, how I begin to desire something and then I just kind of race down what we'll call the slippery slope of conflict. So this comes, it's modified from a guy named Paul David Tripp, but if you could give me the first slide. It starts off, I desire something. I want something. It's not bad to desire a good thing, but I want it. So in my marriage, let me give you an example. I'm an introvert, and so when I come home, I didn't realize how introverted I was, guys, until I was married, and then I didn't realize how introverted I was until I had kids. And now I come home, and I just want a period where I have no expectations on me, where I can just sit and my wife calls it Brandon time. because She likes to make fun of me just a little bit. So I come home and I desire some Brandon time. And so let's go to the next one. What happens though is I begin to think I deserve. I'm entitled to this. It wasn't bad to desire it, but now I'm starting to think, you know, I've worked really hard. I've had a really hard day. I deserve this moment. I deserve some Brandon time. And I just quickly begin to race from there. Once I go there, I'm just falling down the slope. And so the next one I demand. I must get what I'm asking for. I come home with the mindset that I'm gonna get this or I'm just gonna squeeze every little like two minutes here, two minutes there, 30 seconds here. And so I begin to, um, to take it. Anybody else spend an exorbitant amount of time in the bathroom sometimes? really honest, I see a couple hands, thank you for for not leaving me alone there. I'll just look for Brandon time, any spot that I can get. But what ultimately happens is I'm disappointed. I didn't get what I wanted. I wanted more time than that. Five extra minutes in the bathroom wasn't long enough. I I wanted some good quality Brandon time, and so I'm disappointed. I'm sitting on my own personal throne, and the kids keep knocking and trying to get in, and My wife is saying, Brandon, where are you? I need help with this, and I'm disappointed. And so what do I do? I judge. Whose fault is it? Someone is villainizing this, or someone is is blocking me from getting what I want here, and so I sit there, and I'm the prosecuting attorney, and I'm the judge, and I think it's my wife's fault. She knows how hard I've been working. Besides, I gave her time last night to go out with her friends, and so I should really have this time here and I judge. And finally, I punish because she withheld something. She withheld what it was that she knew that I needed in that moment. So she knew that I uh, needed Brandon time and so because of that I judge her and I become uh, the person who passes down the sentence and for me, I'm a withdrawer. So I pull back. From the relationship a little bit, I get a little passive aggressive, I um, begin to be upset until she finally notices that something's wrong, right? Other people might be the type that are more attacking style, but we punish those that we're in relationship with. All because we had this desire, maybe even for a good thing, and we didn't check our hearts, and like James says, these desires began to war inside of us, and we want something and we didn't get it. So I wonder what you're thinking as you look at that slide. I wonder if you can see the progression in some of your own relationships. Others that maybe you've punished or you still are punishing. What about even your relationship with God? I'll be real with you guys. I've, I've put God in a mental kind of timeout or two where I felt like I was able to punish him and withdraw myself almost completely from the relationship because I didn't get what I wanted when I wanted it, and how I felt like I deserved it. At the time, I even felt justified in this. When my dad, I had a desire that my dad, my biological dad, would be a father, and that he would actually care about his son and invest in his son and do those things. And when my dad died and it was closed and there was no hope for that in the future, I looked around and I said, who can I blame that's still here? And the only person really that I could blame was God, and so I didn't even realize what was going on. I think this was completely subconscious, but I withdrew and I had a cool anger towards God and I just wanted nothing to do with him, and it took me probably at least a year to realize what was going on in that relationship. Guys, this is just so hardwired into who we are. It's just part of being human. We've gotta learn to spot the signs, and to do relationship differently if we're gonna be a shalom maker. Told you guys, I don't handle conflict always all that well. I feel like I'm constantly settling for cheap peacemaking in my life. So let me tell you guys, I think most of us in this room fall into one of two camps for cheap peacemaking. Over here, I think we've got the pleasers, and over here, I think we've got the challengers. Okay, the pleasers, the people with their brooms ready, always prepared to sweep everything under the rug, right? The challengers who are ready to make any mole hill into a mountain and they will die on that hill. <laughs> I'll pick on my own camp first, the pleasers, okay? People talk fight, flight, freeze, right? If a bear's coming at you, it's a survival strategy, what do you do, do you freeze, do you take off running, do you put up your fist and you're ready to fight that bear? I told you guys earlier, I am very comfortable in conflict. Very comfortable. I should have clarified. I am very comfortable in your conflict. (laughs) My conflict, I avoid that thing with everything I've got. So I will give one thing, except when I'm driving. I told you guys before, I am an aggressive honker. I consider myself a driving coach that's just always ready to let people know (laughs) when there's areas of improvement. You can say whatever you want about me being real tough when I have a windshield between me and the other person. (laughs) Don't psychoanalyze me. My strategy for the bear guys is I'm not running, I'm not fighting, I'm not freezing, I'm reaching in my bag for treats and snacks and like trying to make that bear so content and so happy it forgets all about me. Told my wife that and she said, that's accurate. And then she said, wait, am I the bear in this analogy? (laughs) I'm to be real transparent here if I leave a room and I'm operating in my default mode my default mode is to leave the room but to quick do a scan and say am I cool with everybody here okay all right mission accomplished then and leave out the door the question I'm going to give some questions pleasers have to ask okay so if you're a pleaser maybe you write these down think on them chew on them I think they're helpful they've been helpful for me Is my response right now motivated by shalom or, first one, my desire to avoid discomfort? Am I motivated in this moment by shalom or my desire to avoid discomfort? To be liked, to get approval? Maybe you could ask it this way. Do I really not care about this issue or am I just trying to appease and avoid? Do I really not care about this issue or am I just trying to appease and avoid? You could also ask, am I trying to escape responsibility? If if we're passive in that moment as pleasers, others make the decision and they take the risk for whether it goes poorly or not. The problem that I find with pleasers is we like to act like we're so selfless we don't care, whoa, oh, whatever you want, we're so selfless and easy to get along with, but then we'll either complain later, or we feel like we're owed when we finally want something. Like we've been secretly just collecting all these chips and now we're like ready to cash them in. Like you owe me because I let you pick the last six restaurants, and so you owe me those new golf clubs that I want, or whatever it may be. Challengers. Let's talk about you guys for a moment. I'm a little afraid of this actually, (laughs) kidding. Challengers have no problem vocalizing their opinion and they will let you know it. They always know the path to shalom. Challengers always know the path to shalom. The problem isn't them, it's that no one's listening to their brilliant ideas on how this should be solved. Forget mutual respect and cooperation, the challenger typically already knows the answer. It's time to get on board, everybody, or get out of the way. Just like for pleasers, let me give a couple questions for challengers. So if you're a challenger, here's your question. In this moment, am I motivated by shalom or my desire to be right? Am I just trying to be right right now? Am I motivated by shalom or trying to have things be my way to be in control? or you could say to have power and influence. No matter which camp you're in, if you're over here or over here, or you kinda like maybe even vacillate and jump between them depending on the situation, you have to get at the desires that are warring underneath. What's the motivation? What's the need underneath all this? For the pleaser, what's the need underneath it? To rescue it, to avoid the discomfort of it. The challenger? To be right, to have my way. A shalom maker is completely different than either of these camps. Setting things, not back to how they were, but setting them right in the way that God designed them to be. The pleaser often doesn't care about their own needs. They'll put their own needs aside and they don't think about how God flavored them and created them to be a part of this discussion. And the challenger typically doesn't care about the needs of the other person and how God flavored them to to help move this thing towards shalom, we need fighters to help us not sweep everything under the rug. To help us actually deal with things, we need pleasers to tell us that not everything, not every molehill, is something that we need to die on. Each one has their strengths, but each one has their weaknesses. But I want to give us a picture of kind of, I think, the better path. What's Jesus talking about when he says, "Blessed are the shalom makers"? So if I If I'm gonna give you a picture of a shalom maker, it's certainly not me. I'm gonna give you the best possible one, and I think there's only one perfect shalom maker. In fact, I would argue that all eight of these beatitude statements, or is there nine? Now I'm second guessing. All of these beatitude statements are descriptors of one person, Jesus. The hero among heroes, Ian Duguid calls him. So I told you earlier, the whole Bible is about conflict resolution. Praise God, he's not a pleaser like me. I'm so glad that God doesn't like overlook our sin, act like he doesn't care, and then just surprise us all of a sudden with I've really been ticked off this whole time. Likewise, I'm so glad God isn't a challenger. Where it's kind of this, how dare you disobey me? I'll show you that I was right, and we're gonna fight about this. You see, that's how the world does conflict, one of those two camps. Just look at Facebook right? I love how countercultural God's peacemaking is though. We didn't talk much about the the cultural backgrounds around this passage, but I want to just do it for a second here. Jesus is talking during a time in history called the Pax Romana, Roman peace, 200 years in the entire Roman Empire, it's pretty amazing, of relative, and I'm going to put that in quotes, relative peace. But he's not just in that, uh, actually, let me say, how does Rome make peace? Power. If you don't bring peace, if you're upsetting the apple cart, we're gonna squash you. If you're willing to help keep the peace, we'll bless you. Rome comes in and they create peace by power. But Jesus is also talking in Israel, which is inside of the Roman Empire, but Israel had another group that had a very different view on how peace should be achieved. They were the Zealots. And so they were trying to incite anyone and everyone in Israel to rebel against the Romans. That's why I said relative peace in quotes. Rome sought peace by power. The Zealots sought peace by violence and fear. They had a branch called the Sicarii means the daggerman, and they'd go around and they'd have these hidden daggers and they would assassinate people in broad daylight. Romans and anyone else who wouldn't fight against them. They'd walk into a busy marketplace. The more crowded, the better. The brighter the day, the better because they wanted to instill as much fear as possible as they brutally assassinated people. And Jesus is right in the middle of all this and he steps up on a mountainside and one of the first words out of his mouth are, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Jesus isn't coming to, is coming to bring peace, but not Roman peace through power, or zealot peace through the dagger. He's coming not to wield the sword, but to fall on it. He's coming not seeking power, but to give up power and to become powerless. The cross, is the most countercultural event in human history and it shows us how Jesus makes shalom by laying down his life for others by lay, by dying to his desires rather than just falling down that slope that we were looking at earlier he let go of his comforts let go of his rights and that's how we're called to make peace also Rome sought peace by power and it was marginally successful for a very finite amount of time. The zealots sought peace through violence and they died at the hands of their own swords. Jesus brought peace through self-sacrifice, peace not by power or violence, but by great love and 2,000 years later, we're still gathered in this room having our hearts changed as we sing songs about his incredible love. Jesus' sacrifice is not just our example. It's the thing that motivates us to go out and bring peace into the other areas of our life. It's the only way that we'll ever truly step into peacemaking. That's why Jesus says when we do, that we're gonna be called the children of God. And I think that he says that intentionally. Not an if you do this. If you bring peace, then I'll adopt you as my son. What he's saying here is that peacemaking is how we reflect our father, Kids are the image of their parents and when we bring shalom, we are imaging God to this world. This idea of us imaging God through bringing shalom is all over scripture. The world is gonna know that Jesus is real in our lives and in our hearts and in this world through our unity and our relationships. Jesus prays a prayer called the High Priestly Prayer. It's also called the Farewell Prayer. Jesus gathers his disciples, and this is the final prayer that he prays for them before he's arrested and taken to the cross. And what does he pray for? John 17 says, my prayer, this is Jesus speaking, my prayer is not for them alone, the disciples, but also for all who will believe in me after their message, that's you and I, that they may be one. If we fast forward just a little bit, so that they may be brought to complete unity, then, Then this is the means the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus' final prayer for the disciples was for unity in relationships, to experience shalom in their relationships, to fight for true peace, not just peacekeeping or conflict avoidance. He says by that unity, the world is gonna know that he's real. I've heard a lot of evangelism strategies. Not many of them Talk about reconciliation. Crossroads, we're part of the answer to that prayer of Jesus. Grand Rapids is gonna know that God is real by the strength of our relationships. Does that encourage you or discourage you? When Paul talks about the armor of God, he talks about feet fitted in the gospel of peace. What kind of good news? The good news of shalom. The good news that God's done it, he's brought shalom. It's done, we can now have it vertically and horizontally in our relationships. The gospel of peace that, so, that says although conflict arises because I don't get what I want in a moment, the gospel says I don't have to get what I deserve either. I get peace because Jesus took what I deserved on the cross, and now I get shalom in place of it. Crossroads, we have been blessed to be a blessing. But it's tough to give what we haven't received. If the gospel of peace hasn't sunk into our hearts, we'll never be true peacemakers for this world. Jesus says it this way, those who have been forgiven much, love much. Those who've been forgiven little, love little. I think the biggest problem in my conflicts is I forget the gospel. I forget the good news of what God's done for me. I forget how much I've been forgiven. I'm like Peter when he goes to Jesus and he just says, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Like, I don't have to keep forgiving them, do I? And he says, seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. And then Jesus gives a story that illustrates my heart so often. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to reconcile accounts with his servants. He's calling in all of his debts, everyone who borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him, I'll contemporize this, millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so the masters ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before the master and he begged him, please be patient with me and I'll pay it all. And the master was filled, filled with pity for him and he released him, and he forgave the entire debt. But when that man left the king, he went to his fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars, and he grabbed him by the throat, and he demanded instant payment. The fellow servant fell down before him, just like he had, and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me, and I'll pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. Too often, In my life, I'm forgetting how much God has forgiven me when I look at other people. Too often, I'm judging others by a standard that, praise God, he doesn't hold me to. I've been forgiven so much. Why then am I so reluctant to lay down my desires for others? I feel like I'm always fixated, and maybe you can relate. I feel like we're always, as a culture, fixated on the specks in everybody else's eye and we just ignore the giant logs in our own. We'll never fulfill that high priestly prayer as long as that's the case. No more. We gotta pledge to do this differently, to look at our sin first and foremost as the biggest problem. You see, God the peacemaker isn't just our example, he's also the fire behind our, our forgiveness we stop to remember all that he's done, it'll revolutionize how we do peacemaking. problem is we just rarely do it in conflict. So I want to close by looking at a passage of scripture. It comes just a couple verses after our one today. In this passage, Jesus calls us to lift our, leave our gift at the altar and go and be at peace with our brother or sister, and remembering what I said earlier a little bit about some of those Um, outlier situations, I wanna challenge everyone in this room to do the courageous thing and to ask God to put his finger on maybe a relationship or two where you need to be more of a peacemaker in it, a relationship where you need reconciliation. Someone has something against you or you have something against someone else. So we're gonna close just with a moment of silence. I'd love to have that verse put up there and Will and the band will come up whenever they're ready.